Hello and welcome to season two of Chatting to a Friend. Season one was the most amazing experience for me and the life lessons and wisdom I learned from my guests, plus the fun I had was absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. The goal for season two is to add more variety and diversity to my guest list. I absolutely love adventure and sport and so those will still feature heavily, but I wanted to talk to more women who have very different life experiences to mine, careers, backgrounds and challenges that I wanted to learn more about to widen my understanding and broaden my horizons. I realise there's a lot of me, me, me in this intro, but it's because I still feel like it's the most extraordinary privilege for me to talk to and learn from these women. And so even if no one's listening, it remains the most personal of all my projects. Having said that, from the amazing feedback I've had and how much you have kept listening between seasons, I know you're going to love these conversations too. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast either on Apple or on lovethepodcast.com forward slash chatting to a friend. I can't wait to hear how you love season two. Today's guest is Cathy O'Dowd, South African mountaineer. She was the first woman to climb Everest from both the north and south faces. Her expeditions at the time were a little bit controversial, big bit controversial in some ways. And you can Google those because (laughs) it's too much to go into within the episode and it's certainly the introduction. But I read her book when I was in my late 20s. It was not long published and I have remained captivated by it ever since. And so it was fate that she should contact me a few months ago and ask me to give a talk to a group that she runs for ski mountaineers. And I was absolutely thrilled when she returned the favor and said she would talk to me. She has faced, as I say, some quite huge dramas on a mountain. Drama seems like a very pathetic word to use, but She was there during the very big and now famous storm of May 1996, where a lot of people died on Everest. She has lost teammates and people on the mountain. And it's just a conversation about her life, how she came into it, how she became the mountaineer she is, how she dealt with the controversy, how mountaineering is now opening up to women, people of colour, not just the traditional grizzly white man. And it's quite a challenging conversation, actually, because Kathy is a brilliant, brilliant individual with her very own certain ways of thinking about things. And you'll hear that she doesn't just agree with my statements. She challenges me. And I actually thoroughly enjoyed that. If you'd asked me a year ago, had I, would I have enjoyed a guest who did that to me? I'd have cried and hidden under the bed. But I really thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you get out of it as much as I did. Hi, Cathy. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great. It's lovely to be with you. Well, this is a bit of a, almost a 20 year dream come true for me, believe it or not, because I read your book in the early 2000s, I think when it first came out, would that be about right? Would it be about then? Yes, that's about right. And absolutely Oh, my word, just was just bowled over by it. The story and the drama and all the, you know, the, the oh, everything. I thought it was just incredible. And then I know you don't remember, but we, you then spoke at a conference I was organizing in Celtic Manor in Wales in 2004. 
And I was a little starstruck. So it is a great pleasure for me to actually speak to you like a normal human being. <laughs> no, it's, it's great to be with you. And I mean, you've done, wow, so much since 2004. It's, it's incredible what you've you know, done with your life in the interim. Well, I have to say it is, uh, it's certainly not the life I thought I'd be leading, but it, uh, <laughs> I think that happens to many of us, including your good self. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. But it's kind of exciting to, to look at that. And, you know, you almost wish you could send a message back in time and say, you know, just stay focused, keep on trying. It's going to be fun. Enjoy the ride. It'll all work out. <laughs> totally. And you just, you think, but then I'm not sure. I think me at that age would never have believed that I would be doing the things I'm doing now, living in my little flat in Hartford, just, you know, in the flatlands of England, <laughs> now doing what I do. So, but talking of which, so going back a little bit uh, on your story, you were a journalist, a very successful, you know, very rock climber in South Africa, thinking about, you know, doing your masters uh, and not really thinking about climbing big mountains. Well, I modified that a little bit. Actually, by then, I was doing quite a lot of mountaineering, uh, Central Africa, Alps, the Andes. And I'd never really thought bigger than that. And frankly, at that time, the, the 14,000ers weren't a thing, you know, given that it's a completely artificial um, human creation, uh, the, the number 8,000 meters. But I wasn't thinking about the Himalaya until I picked up a book and it was, I highly recommend it to the, the listenership. It's by Arlene Bloom. It's called A Woman's Place. Oh, yeah. And it's the story of the first all-woman expedition to an 8,000-meter peak. They went to Annapurna. And they succeeded, but there's also a lot of interpersonal drama so it's both mm. it's got both mountaineering and it's a you know, it's a very honest insight uh, into sort of the emotional tensions of those kind of expeditions, and that was the first thing that made me think like wow you know as a woman maybe maybe the Himalaya is a objective, but I couldn't see mm. a way to find to get there. There were no commercial expeditions back then, so that's what I had in mind. Any opportunity that would get me on an expedition to the Himalaya. And so then you picked up the newspaper one day, and what did you see? Well, <laughs> the first South African Everest expedition with an entirely male team. Mm. And I just sort of had that, oh, well, life's like that feeling. Kept on reading. And the big Sunday newspaper that was running the story were also one of the sponsors. And it turned out that they decided they needed to make the coverage a bit more exciting with what was frankly kind of an early version of reality television. And they were going to run a competition to find a girl to place on the summit as if she was a flag. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and oh my God, it was dreadful. Even at the time, I thought it was contrived and sexist. And of course, mm. you know, more than 25 years later, it just, it just looked awful. So at the time I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. It's such a bad way to pick a team member, you know, it's, it's, it's very sexist. The men have been invited based on their reputations and the women have to jump through hoops competing with each other for the one, one extra place. Mm. But I've always been really pragmatic about life. Like, hmm, 
It's the only opportunity I've seen. <laughs> and they're going to pick a short list of six women. They'll take them on a selection trip to Kilimanjaro. I've never climbed Kilimanjaro. Hey, free trip. I bet I can make the short list. So that's, you know, that's where I started from. And it worked. I made the shortlist, got invited to join the team. It was as awkward as I expected and made mm. worse by the fact the team itself had massive uh, interpersonal problems. So it was very, the team dynamic was dreadful. Yeah, because I remember that being part of the book, but I don't remember the detail. Can you give us in a in a nutshell what were the issues? Oh, it doesn't fit in a nutshell. So... <laughs> Uh, just just highlight a handful. People picked because of their CVs, so not particularly picked to work together as a group. Mm. Picked on their CVs, people with big egos, but everyone came from South Africa. It wasn't as if anybody had, you know, vast amounts of experience. Mm. Compared with people internationally, we were, we were you know, a goldfish splashing around in a bowl. Nobody had anything much to... <laughs> it doesn't matter... Uh, yes, so clashes of ego, clashes of, of style about leadership and approach to money and logistics. And part of the problem was we were treated like a national team, but there was no national team support. There was no money. There were no right. psychologists. There were no coaches. We were just a group of individuals. The leader had scraped together the sponsorship money from like 30 different sponsors, which is a, mm. a nightmare. And... No one had ever done anything bigger than just going on a climbing holiday with your mates. Mm. And suddenly we have hundreds of thousands of dollars in expedition budget. And we have the entire national media, you know, staring at us through a telescope, looking for every detail and every conflict. And none of us had any um, idea this was coming or any tools to cope with it. And not everybody stayed, is that right, if I remember correctly? Not everybody stayed. There was a kind of abortive leadership takeover attempt while still walking into base camp. And uh, three of the guys made the mistake of resigning in writing. Um, I think they assumed we would beg them to to stay, and the rest of us didn't. Uh, <laughs> they were very good climbers, but it, they were just... the. the Atmosphere was so poisonous. We actually thought we we're better off with a group of people who roughly get on with each other, even if we're not, yeah. you know, we'll just do our best. We'll plot up the mm. mountain as far as we can and we'll take that over this, this poisonous dynamic that we had. Mm. Because, you know, you're saying you've got all these hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, the national press, uh, uh, you know, before the, the days of smartphones but still as you say a sort of an early reality tv everybody watching nelson mandela had given you his blessing and and you know told you would if i'm right there would be hard times ahead sort of thing and you weren't young but still young enough as a team presumably for this to all be quite overwhelming what, what made you stay well i was fairly young i was 27 and i'd never mm. been in anything you know, in the national spotlight like this before. Mm. Two things, I think. One was a sense of just how exceptional the opportunity was. At that point, I couldn't imagine that I would, you know, ever get another chance uh, to do something like this. And the other was a sense of 
hard to put it into words. Uh, keeping a sense of self in the middle of all of this drama and conflict, which mm. is, I didn't always fully understand what was going on. In retrospect, mm. I wish I'd been a bit more assertive about some of it and a bit less sort of thrown uh, by other things. But nevertheless, in the middle of all the conflict, I tried quite hard to keep a sense of self, why I'm here, what I want to achieve, and am I behaving reasonably despite the drama around me? And, I mean, it didn't entirely work. And um, I got criticised in, in the media uh, in various ways, some of them some of them sexist, I guess, not all of them. But mm. nevertheless, I just tried to keep my head down and keep moving forward with a sense of why am I here and what do I want to achieve? Mm -hmm. And when you say not being thrown, what, what do you wish you hadn't been thrown by? Well, there was quite a lot of power play going on, uh, an attempt by sort of fitter, faster, um, better known people in the team to assert their strength and therefore how indispensable they were. Mm. I mean, whether they were doing, to what extent they were doing that consciously or not, I don't know, but that's certainly how it felt to those of mm. us kind of plodding along at the back. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't feel welcoming. It didn't feel inclusive at all. And I was thrown by it. I was quietly questioning my own ability and am I good enough to be here? And I mean, the answer was in, you know, was in the fact that I ended up on the summit of Everest two months later. Yeah. I was clearly yeah. good enough to be there. So I wish I hadn't sort of lost so much anxiety to, to feeling token and feeling inferior and, and mm. worrying that I wasn't fit enough. Uh, I, I tried to keep that to myself. I tried to believe in myself and keep on going, which I did. I didn't let it stop me altogether, but it mm. certainly drained certainty and joy and self-confidence from at least the start of the experience. Yeah, and these are such watchwords now. I mean, this is sort of the thing that everybody's talking about now, the belief in yourself and sticking to your own plan and you know think believing you're enough but people weren't talking about that sort of thing as you said you had no coaches no psychiatrists all that sort of thing back in the 90s people didn't talk about that sort of thing no they they didn't talk about it and there was definitely a couple of things that at the time seemed as if they were normal you know rational and in retrospect uh, looked really quite poisonous one of them was the the suck it up this is tough only, only mm. tough people get to do this. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And <laughs> so any sign of, I kind of, I don't like this, I find this uncomfortable, does it really need to be this aggressive and this negative and this competitive? It's just like, oh, well, you know, look who isn't tough enough. Mm. Um, and then the other thing, which again, I don't think we really registered as kind of sexist at the time, was girls needed to be one of the guys. You know, and, and, and there's another side of, of, of be tough enough. But you, being tough was a certain kind of aggressive masculinity. You know, clearly women can be all sorts of things and yet perfectly capable of climbing high mountains. They do. Yeah. So <laughs> toughness was much less self-evident than the people would have told you at the time. But it's, it's interesting to me how much of it kind of wasn't apparent back then. It was just you know, the culture of the time. No, I, I, I agree, and I, I, because I, well, I clearly wasn't climbing mountains, but at that age, that era, I was working in event management, and 
you know, while not exactly comparable, it is along the lines of, you know, who had stayed awake the longest, who had driven the most miles, who had run the most events, who had, and it was all about just, as you say, suck it up. And there was no sort of allowance for there must be a different way of achieving these same results that doesn't just wear everybody to a crisp. Yes. And not only there must be a way to do this that isn't so sort of emotionally hard on everyone, there must be a way to do this that isn't so exclusionary. Yes. Because certainly, I don't think this only applies to women. I'm sure there are plenty of men who, who found it thoroughly uncomfortable having to act that kind of toughness. Mm. But for women, there's so many, you know, thoroughly capable women were just shut out because they didn't know how to perform that way or it, they they couldn't bring themselves to do it or it meant shutting out an entire side of themselves. Strength is so much not just XY chromosomes and bulging biceps. There's <laughs> so much more to being strong mm. and capable in wild environments. And I think we're much more open now in bringing a, a far wider range of people in. And so do you see that now in Europe? Because you obviously you've carried on uh, climbing and mountaineering and ski touring and, and uh, doing expeditions in the intervening years. Do you see that much more now with, as you say, with women, with people of color, with people who's, who, are, who do not fit into the traditional white bearded grizzly man? Oh, so much more. It's been really interesting to watch. I mean, I don't, there's certain things about the modern world, which I'm not sure are an improvement, but there are absolutely a number of ways in which things are so much better now. There's a much wider range. Uh, well, there are far more women in mm. outdoor sports and there's a much wider range of kind of how to be a woman in outdoor sports. Uh, there are lots of different models. There are lots of different people you can look to. There's so much more information. People talk so much more freely about all the different kinds of things that can kind of shut a woman down, whether it's from dealing with anxiety to wondering how to manage um, your periods at 8,000 meters, mm. just much more open. And then kind of behind the wave of women coming in has been the wave of people of color. And I mean, I grew up in South Africa under, you know, hard apartheid. Yeah. And there's no doubt that back in the day, perfectly, you know, decent, well-meaning, uh, well-educated white people who loved the outdoors and would have waxed lyrical about how much their life had been enriched by participating in these activities. And the next breath, they would have told you, oh, black people don't climb. Just, yeah. that's it, hard, hard statement. Yeah. No, not a moment to start thinking, maybe does it have anything to do with, you know, culture or poverty or lack of resources or lack of opportunities? Like, no, no. Or yeah. lack of role models. Yeah, all of it, all of mm. it. And now it's changing generation by generation. I just mm. see more and more wonderful athletes coming out of South Africa. And initially in the more conventional sports, and now they're spreading out into all these wild and weird um, mountain sports. It's great. Yeah, I was, re I was interviewing Caroline George, who's a mountain guide here in uh, Switzerland just recently. And she talks 
very um, passionately about the invisible mountain, specifically with regards to women, but I think it's also with regards to anyone who isn't that traditional, you know, mountaineer. And it's, it is that just that it's invisible. You, you can't see it, but it's there that, as you say, resources and um, role models. And if you can't see it, you can't be it, all that sort of stuff. So it is just fantastic to see progress being made. But you know what I find really interesting about it? So a lot of people kind of hate on Everest now because of the queues, you know, the classic mm. photograph. And, yeah. you know, I don't want to be in that queue. And I'm glad I got to climb it, you know, way back when. Both the times I got to the summit, we were the only team, you know, mm. kind of above the top camp. So I got the absolute classic mountaineering experience. And, yeah, I have reservations about the fact there's now a fixed safety line from base camp to the summit and you don't even need to bring an ice axe. And wow. all the risk management and decision-making has been outsourced to guides. And all that's left is the absolute physicality of putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. So there's all of that, which I think is largely negative. But I've watched how it's opened doors in South Africa to mm. men and women of color because Everest is the symbol of kind of outdoor achievement, got all of this press, then it became possible through the commercial expeditions. And now Mm. one individual person could try and pull together enough money to buy a place on a team. They didn't have to, you know, like me, try and find a group of people to go with, try and wait to be invited, try and build experience by, you know, going on a team, but you never got on a team because you didn't yet have enough experience to contribute. Mm. And I watched them start to go to Everest and, you know, in the simplest way possible, guide support, Sherpa support on the fixed line. It's like, well, that's not really mountaineering, but but the thing is it's an entryway. You know, Mm. every every generation enters in a different place. And Mm. that the first wave have entered up onto Everest, more and more South Africans are going out there, and then they start to move on. They take that experience, which you know, they got that way, and mm. find themselves, just like our generation, beginning to go like, it's not just Everest. It's mountains. Mm. It's wilderness. Wow, this is cool. I could I could start to own these skills myself. Maybe I don't need to pay, pay a guide every time. Maybe I'm ready to step up and get more independent. It's been, for all its funny quirks, it's been a real door opener of opportunity mm for people coming out of Africa. Because it's that way with many things. I mean, you, you talked about having to have the sheer physicality and presumably there's you've got to have still a bit of mental toughness as well. I mean, there's regardless of the prep that you don't necessarily have to do anymore, the sort of, as you say, that maybe some of the health and safety has been taken away, but the confidence and uh, self-belief you must gain still from putting one foot in front of another above 8,000 metres, even above 6,000 metres, is, is, must be incredible. Um, exactly. I mean, all of that has to be learned. All of that has to be experienced. And this is one way of doing it. I think the only thing, perhaps a downside of learning this way, is you lose two things. You get the impression this can only be done if you can raise, you know, whatever. I don't know. Depends which mm-hmm. expedition, $30,000, $50,000 to join a commercial trip. And that's not mm. true. There's so much that can be done in the mountains for a couple of hundred euros, a couple of thousand euros. Yeah. 
And the other thing it does is it does normalize outsourcing skill and judgment to guides and all respect to guides. But you know, for people who want to move independently in the wilderness, you need to be able to, to do the judgment yourself and you need to build mm. the skill set yourself. And at some point to do that, you're going to have a step away from guides and start doing training and then start going out and trying it and seeing whether it works and learning from your mistakes and coming home with your tail between your legs thinking, okay, I'll do better next time. But, but we have to do that. You know, I think so. And, and it, it, it does seem, as you say, it does seem like a bizarre way to enter the, the arena, so to speak. But as you say, maybe, maybe, that's the, maybe that's the only mountaineering someone ever does and just says, there, I've done it. But maybe, as you say, it sparks that lifelong interest in, well, if I could do that with help, what could I do with friends or on my own or somebody I met on the mountain? And I, I, I love that, that it's <laughs> seems like the most bizarre entry level thing to, to be able to do, but it seems to be opening doors, as you say. Absolutely. And and even the people who, who do it once and go like, hell no, never again. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to be said for trying things and learning who you are, what you're good at, mm. what you like, what brings you joy. And, you know, maybe they'll be able to take the adventurous spirit and go like, okay, high mountains, not my thing. But yeah. I don't know, sea kayaking, let's give that a go. <laughs> you know, uh, Arctic trekking, something. It, it just bring the spirit of adventure and realize there are things out there to be tried and you know, keep on looking. You know, quite exactly what I was just thinking, because before we started recording, you were telling me that you were uh, in fabulous weather along a knife-edge ridge, and I just went, oh, <laughs> because, you know, I've tried climbing and I do a lot of, I do a lot of stuff in the mountains, but knife edge ridges just just do, do not bring me joy. That is for sure. But the experience of having cried on knife edge ridges and, you know, being on super steep faces and so on has made me think, well, I've done that. I don't love it, but I can go on and do something else. I can go and run an ultramarathon in the desert or I can do the Patrie de Glacier. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that thing, as you say, that you, that scared you. It can be, you can never do that again, but have learned the skills to move on. Absolutely. You have learned the skills. You can hopefully come to realize there are other things out there. But also, I think there's another asset, which is having been in a situation which was thoroughly scary. Even if you decide, okay, that, that was my limit. I never want to be at that edge again. And I've, mm. yeah, I've been there in the high mountains. You know, I got to a point where I felt I was like on my limit looking into the abyss. And I was like, interesting. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. <laughs> but the confidence that comes from having been in that scary place, survived it and pulled back helps. Next time you're somewhere that's demanding and scary and uncertain and not what you were hoping for, mm. you kind of know like, oh, yeah, I've been through this before. It, it's okay. I'll come out the other end. Just keep on moving. That's really yeah. um, sustaining. That is really powerful. And I want to come back to that. I'm just quite interested to know where was your limit with this abyss? <laughs> so the hardest thing I've ever done in the Himalaya was as a member of a team trying to climb a new route. So mm. this was on Nanga Parbat, so 8,000-meter yes. peak, number nine. The killer mountain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and 
this was the Mizeno Ridge, which at the, at the time was kind of the longest unclimbed ridge in the high Himalaya. Mm. So it's an incredibly long route, you know, nearly nine kilometers from base camp to the summit horizontally, which is quite unusual for high altitude. And then the ridge runs at 7,000 meters high. You've got to cross eight summits. And that's before Oof. the ridge meets the main mountain. And then you've still got to climb to over 8,000 meters to finish it. And we were climbing alpine styles. So, you know, no fixed camps, no resupply, everything in a rucksack. And you move your camp day by day. Team of six, 10 days of food. And we made our first summit attempt on day 11. So clearly the maths isn't working already mm. and mm. botched it took the wrong line, didn't manage to get to the summit. And at that point, out of food, two-day climb to go down. It's a traverse, so we don't know the descent route. We've never seen it before. So we're still going forward, even Mm. though we're going down. No food left. And, you know, at that point, I was so tired. My back was killing me and very aware that we were way, way, way into high-risk territory. And mm. that was when I was like, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I just, can I go home now, please? <laughs> I would like to get out of here. And at that point, two of the team decided to try again, and we gave them all the remaining supplies. Wow. And, I mean, it took them another, so if that was day 12, it took them another six days to finish it. <gasps> um, so utterly epic. And our two days down was pretty epic in its own right, done on a tea mm-hmm. bag and sort of two biscuits. Uh, so interesting, but yes, I've got no desire ever to be on something quite that extreme again. <laughs> and there is a video uh, with uh, that your sponsor at the time, I don't mm. know if they're still your sponsor, but Morabank put out, um, which I have only got halfway through. I'm embarrassed mm-hmm. to say, but it looks very fascinating. <laughs> so talking of, you know, y- you faced quite a lot in your years in the mountains. I mean, that first expedition in itself is now one of the most famous seasons on Everest of all time. May 1996, mm-hmm. big storms, a high death rate. How, I mean, it's impossible to go into in a short podcast, but, and I thoroughly recommend everybody reads your book, and all the other books and all the bits that, you know, all the things that came out of it, because there are lots of sides to lots of all the, all the stories. But that must have been utterly terrifying, that big storm, you know, and you were being asked for help. And there were all the, the some of the most experienced mountaineers in the world at the time were up there lost on the mountain. Hmm. No, I don't think I was terrified. Mm. Um, so two thoughts about that. One is. And I've heard this said by people who've been in war zones. This kind of thing, a great deal of it is actually just boring. Because, yes, it's high risk. And you kind of know that intellectually. But nothing's Mm. happening right now. So you're sitting in a tent and the wind's howling. And the, the guy lines, you've actually got the ropes over the tops of the tents to try and keep them in place. Everything's Mm -hmm. strumming like guitar strings in the wind. And you can feel the buffeting and you're fully dressed because God forbid the tent should tear open and you're in your, you know, your thermal underwear. That's not going to work. Yeah. So you're sitting there through the night, fully dressed in case it goes wrong and you're thrown into the storm, having another cup of coffee. And it's just, there's nothing happening. And in that little Mm. bubble, until the tent does tear or something, somebody's required to go outside, you are safe. Mm. So 
it is this bizarre sense of kind of intellectually, I know that this is big drama, but right now, I'd actually quite like just to go back to sleep for a bit, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. But the other thing, thinking about the idea that it must be terrifying, I don't think like that. And I think, I don't know to what extent this is just me or it can't be just me. It's got to be some subset of people who think <laughs> about it like this. I think of these things as being, let's say initially you're, you're in a room and you're moving towards the light down, down the corridor and there's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the goal you're moving towards. And there's plenty of space to maneuver. You can go left or right. You've got a big vision of where you're going. It's all fine. And then as things start to go wrong, it's a little bit like being in a tunnel. So it closes in on you. Mm. And that light at the end of the tunnel is getting narrower and the darkness around you, which is all the ways it could go catastrophically wrong, is taking up much more of your vision mm-hmm. and getting much darker. Mm-hmm. And you could look into the darkness and paralyze yourself by catastrophizing about all the things mm. that could go wrong. Or you could look towards the light and get on with what is still available to you to do. And it probably your resources are decreasing and your possibilities are decreasing, but they haven't run out yet. And I have never yet had them completely run out. I've always been in a situation where there was still a little bit of light, a few possibilities, a few tools, and I've always been moving towards the light. That's a very interesting yeah, I hadn't thought. Well, I actually, that's not, I have thought about that because I had my eyes lasered recently and I had to drive in the dark and all I could look at, in fact, the opposite, I had to look at the dark and not at the light. <laughs> but no, I see what you mean. Sorry, I'm not trying to be flippant. But I'm thinking about, you know, that the, you stuck in the tent, remember, or just reread it on your website recently about Ian, your expedition leader, having to go out and see if he could find help to help the people that were still up on the uh, coming down from the summit, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And not finding people, finding a guy sitting on a rock, almost frozen solid, which by the way, I've just reread that and realized that I, I know the person whose tent he opened. And I didn't know that 20 years ago when I read the book, <laughs> but I know him now. <laughs> um, and just that sort of how much, of what happened that night is just, I mean, I know you've written a book and lots of people have written a book, but it must be so difficult to explain how it feels or how it all plays out to people who have never experienced that level of, well, situation. I think the things that are hardest to explain aren't, perhaps aren't so much, internal emotion, because I think they must be very different for different people. Mm. And uh, as I've probably made clear, I'm fairly pragmatic and uh, not inclined to catastrophize. What I find difficult to explain are two things. One is the level of confusion. So Mm. all these books have now been written about that storm by people who got to interview a whole lot of different people and read the reports afterwards and check back on weather reports. And so it gets presented with a whole lot of accompanying information that makes it look as if at the time the climbers knew all of that. 
We didn't. Yeah. He had no idea no. what was going on. We didn't know who was missing. We didn't know how many people had gone up. You know, the, each team is a fairly self-contained little unit. Uh, the radio communications are terrible, um, mm. given the static of the storm. Nobody's able to recharge their radio batteries up there. So you can't even have your radios on all the time because you're just going to run out of battery. So the first thing people underestimate is what I've seen, you know, again, the army has all the good metaphors for this, the fog of war, the mm. utter confusion of being in the storm. And when people go like, why didn't you do, you know, X, Y, Z? The answer is like, we, we didn't even know we could have, you know, we, we mm. had no idea what was going on. That's the one side of it. And then the other side that people forget is the lack of resources, yeah. Again, it's quite easy to sit in the city and go like, oh, well, well, you should have done, should have done something. But the trouble is in a city, what we actually normally mean is we're going to pick up the phone and call the ambulance or call the police or call, you know, um, 112. And mm. then some experts will come in and take over and we'll have done our yeah. bit. There are no experts. There is no one to call. There's yeah. just us. And with our very limited resources, which cannot be resupplied, at least not in a hurry. Uh, so if you give away everything you've got to other people, you are left with nothing and nobody will solve that for you. So people kind of don't realize how small your resources are, how limited your physical manpower is, and how, yes, how limited your options are in terms of solving problems or, you know, frankly, what we're really talking about is saving other people's lives. Yeah. And do you think when you went up there, 27-year-old, trying to ignore the sort of macho crap that was going on around, did, did you have any idea that there was even the possibility that you would be faced with losing a teammate um, people dying on the mountain. Yes, of course. I mean, I mean in, in theory, no, you no, knew, but it, it, were you prepared? Well, okay, let's I'll take a middle line. I don't think anybody can be prepared, prepared. Mm. Uh, you just don't know what it's going to feel like and how you're going to react until it finally actually happens. Mm. But on the other hand, to have gone to something like Everest, and it doesn't need to be Everest, any proper wilderness activity, to be doing it without a recognition that it is genuinely risky and that the final end of risk is death or life-changing injury is irresponsible. You know, so I'm just floored by anyone who thinks you could be on Everest and not have thought about these things. Yeah. And you, I'd already had uh, a couple of friends, one of them very close to me, die in the mountains. It doesn't have to be a roast. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I'd, I'd already had my round of losing somebody I cared about very deeply, watching the grief of his parents and his sister, feeling his absence in the community of climbers, wondering whether that was justifiable, how we justified it, whether I wanted to keep on climbing after all of that. Hmm. Uh, so yes, I'd walk that path and you should have done it long, long before you're on a 8,000 meter peak. Mm -hmm. And when you came home the first time and also the second time you went back to Everest and you, well, unfortunately, famously, infamously had to make the decision to leave somebody on the mountain and anyone who wants to, I suspect, can read about that. But there was quite a lot of 
backlash, a lot of controversy. And you've said a few times that you're quite pragmatic, but that, that must have, or I'm not, I won't speak for you. How did you deal with the controversy? How did you deal with the suddenly, as you say, coming out of this fog and people with opinions and who weren't even there? Was that a shock to you? Yes, but only up to a point. Partly because it was the second time round through this, because we got that on the first Everest expedition as well. Huge media coverage in South Africa, lots of controversy, and then coming home to discover all sorts of complete strangers had opinions. And it's not any fun, but in retrospect, it's quite a useful thing to have lived through. Mm. And what did I... So what I got out of it, one was understanding there's not a lot you can do about it. You mm. cannot reach out to every one of those strangers and try and put across your point of view. Uh, and even if you did, they may not agree with you. They could just look at the world differently. So, you know, there, there's no way around any of that. But life goes on. You can, mm. you know, you, you reach out to the people that you can reach. You... Mm-hmm you know, listen to the criticisms of the people who matter to you, not the criticisms of every Tom, Dick and Harry um, with a voice on, well, now on social media uh, or back then through more more general media. So it was quite useful exercise in separating the wheat from the chaff, what criticisms are valid and should be listened to and possibly acted on and what are just, you know, the the screeching of the vultures uh, in the distance. You've just got to let it go. It was quite useful to live through public failure and public criticism and realize that life goes on because that made me less scared about trying things that might not work. I'm sure this affects everybody, but it certainly affects women. The sense of, yes, but what if it doesn't work? What if I'm seen to fail? You know, I can't possibly try something unless I'm certain it's going to happen for me. And that just excludes you from so much. Because if you don't try something outrageous, you'll never find out that actually it could have worked. You are good enough. But you had to walk the line, take the risk, um, risk public failure to discover mm. that actually what you were going to get was success. Or, or maybe you get a mixed bag. But, I, but there's still things out of it that were worthwhile. So that's all been very helpful. I think I got more done in my later career because I live through kind of two rounds of big public failure, public criticism. No, because that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, it's a very much a sliding doors kind of thing, but do you feel that you toughened up is probably not the right word, but just managed to live your life differently because of it? I'm not sure that I'd call it toughened up. I don't, yeah, toughened up seems not quite, I was, Already tough enough, I just didn't know it. I was yeah. kind of underselling myself. So it was finding that capacity uh, to to live through this kind of thing and not be destroyed by it. And what helped with that, or also kind of also what I got out of it, was a greater clarity of what what matters to me. What am I actually trying to achieve with this life that I'm living? What kind of things do I really want to do? And, you know, when you're facing judgment about your choices, one thing you can do with that is go like, okay, let's 
dig into this, think about the judgment, mm. think about the choices, think about my life, think about whose voices matter to me, think about what my own voice is trying to say to me, you know, in the midst of all this noise from everyone else, and use that clarity to move forward and get on with living my life. Yeah, I read a quote by Hillary Clinton quite recently that said something along the lines of, if there's, you receive criticism, and if the criticism, you know, if you feel it, if you understand it, if there's a grain of truth, then you work on it. And if there isn't, then you, you just let it roll off your back. Uh, absolutely. I mean, everyone has an opinion. <laughs> but <laughs> that, that, you know, that doesn't mean that they, they understand the facts or they understand the circumstances or they understand your approach to life. Yeah. I mean, social media has shown us that everyone has an opinion and they're very keen to share it. And you yeah. just... You will collapse if you allow other people's opinions to sway you all the time. I think in the middle of all this noise, it's really important that we create space to listen to our own voice. What do we want? What do we value? How do we get there? And that we consciously have around us people whose voices matter, whose opinions matter. And we can turn to them and say, Am I missing something? You know, is this yeah. greater noise around me? Is it valid? Is it justified? And those are the people whose opinions carry weight. And, you know, we might change things based on that. But the rest of it, it's just thunder on the horizon. You've got to let it roll over and pass. Yeah. What is it? Is it Dr. Seuss that says those that mind don't matter and those that matter <laughs> don't mind? <laughs> Um, and so talking about going on to your sort of career after being the first woman to summit Everest from both sides, oh, well, two of three sides, I believe there is a, there is a third side that no one talks about. Correct. It's <laughs> and really you, had a, you had an attempt on that. Uh, yes. So when people talk now about Everest being kind of devalued, yeah, no, you can have the old fashioned experience if you want to. And particularly on the east side, which is the third side, the Kanchung face. There's one route on the edge, which has been repeated. There's one route done with most amazing kind of industrial level support years, decades ago by the Americans, which mm. I think has never been repeated. Mm. And in my opinion, there are at least two other lines, which no one has ever managed to do. Mm. And I know why. I mean, I went and had a look and, oh, my God. <laughs> they are waiting for another generation, but they're waiting. And if you go to the east face of Everest, you are guaranteed to be the only team. And it's a long yeah. way in. You're a six-day walk from any kind of help. And that's just a little Tibetan village. Wow. So you can be fully remote in the true big mountain wilderness, attempting a new route on the world's highest peak, you know, if you're good enough. Mm. And, you know, everybody talks about Everest and Everest, obviously the highest mountain in the world and it's sort of the pinnacle, but there are actually harder mountains to climb, are there not? Yes, although it really makes sense to say there is no such thing as the hardest mountain. All um, they mean when they say, for example, uh, K2 is the hardest mountain in the world, all they mean mm. is of the top 14, and that's artificial because it's above eight thousand meters which is a number we invented of the top 14 the easiest route on k2 is harder than the easiest route on any of the others although right. even that is debatable and there are now commercial expeditions on k2 
and they're increasingly there are fixed lines on all the difficult bits on K2 on, on this on the standard route, which is far easier than plenty of the other things that are getting climbed uh, in the world by the top mountaineers. So it's basically it's a meaningless statement. Or there are, are big challenging mountains with increasingly ridiculously difficult routes on them. And there are still mm. things waiting to be done. We are not yet good enough. We, we don't yet have the equipment. We don't yet have the, the physical training or, or the sheer mental grit for it. Mm. So yeah, there's stuff out there still to be done. Exciting. And what, so in, in the intervening years, you've carried on living in the mountains, loving the mountains, doing expeditions and so on, but you've also had a very successful speaking career, which I can attest to firsthand from 2004. Um, and how do you, I mean, we've talked, I suspect we've sort of touched on quite a lot of the subjects you talk about already today, but what, how have you managed to translate a life in the mountains into helping people in a business environment? Well, mostly I don't talk about what we've been talking about now, really, because that's kind of an individual approach um, mm. to living in the world. Whereas corporate clients are more interested in managing teams in high-risk, high-stress environments when they're pursuing very big, very challenging goals. So when I talk with them, uh, that's where I would focus in on. Now, let's be completely honest here. People like me, who get lumped as motivational speakers, <laughs> it's entertainment. In a long, dry, possibly boring business agenda, <laughs> uh, people like me are brought in to cheer things up, bring them some drama, some emotion, you know, some dramatic story in a completely different environment. But what they would like in addition to all of that and just some great storytelling is some parallels, some crossovers uh, that they can take back into their thinking about the leadership and management of teams and the running of projects. So it's all at a fairly high level, high, high level metaphors. And the, the core is uh, behavior and management of people in these very difficult environments. And I think that's actually, that's why I've lasted so long doing this because individual adventurers, it's a little problematic. You end up with a, a story that can be summarized as I came, I saw, I conquered, and now you may be inspired by me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sells a little better in America where they're sort of very big on individual achievement. But Europeans tend to just get cynical about that. Like, yeah, yeah, okay. But yeah, where's the takeaway? Uh, we we yeah. work in teams. We work on big projects. Where's the takeaway? And... I've always focused on not telling my story, but telling the story of what it meant to be part of a team and what what the team got right and got wrong and what we learned and what tools we used and you know what, what had to be adapted. Uh, I've also always focused on trying to be very honest about what we were trying to achieve, the mistakes we made, and then how we tried to rectify that. Uh, so it's first of all, it's impossible to be perfect. That's not the message. 
The message yeah. is you've got to be good enough to try. You've got to realize the mistakes quickly. You've got to solve them creatively. And then you've got to keep on moving. Mm. Uh, and it's that process of adaption and learning uh, that, that allows you to overcome problems, not kind of being perfect from the word go. You know, because it's quite often, you know, if you've been in a in a stressful office environment uh, or whatever it might be, a corporate environment, and somebody says, well, it's okay, nobody died. But, you know, in, in, in your team environment, that happens. You know, nobody is likely to die if somebody loses a big merger, for example. Yes, but, 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 but <laughs> what drives me crazy when they say that, because yes, I agree, but... Some of my clients are managing, you know, hundreds of millions of yeah. euros of other people's money. Yeah, you know, that's hideous. Our mistakes, you know, it's one person's life, you know, not, not undervaluing that at all. But we're volunteers. We put ourselves in this situation. We thought it was going to be a good idea. We thought it would be fun. You know, we yeah. are volunteers. But these people are managing vast amounts of money. And when they make mistakes, it has lifelong impact on individuals they will never meet. I think yeah. one of their biggest problems, one of the big differences is we make a mistake and we get feedback really quickly and mm. it comes to us personally. It's a cock up and we are now in trouble and we've got to solve it. They, they make mistakes and it can take years for the consequences to come back and they may, may never affect the people who made the mistakes. But all of this is beyond my expertise when it comes to talking to business. But nevertheless, they do drive me crazy when they act as if they're not taking real risks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, right. My goodness. I could just keep chatting for hours, but um, busy, busy for you. Uh, and I've just heard my daughter come home from school. So I wondered, did you... Now, I know you've seen my challenge, Katie, thing, and I, I wasn't actually quite sure what you've challenged me to do. So explain, please. <laughs> right. So my challenge is in the Chamonix Valley. So the challenge is to go to an indoor climbing wall. Yes. Have you done any of that before? Yes. <laughs> I have. It was on my long list of things that don't make me happy anymore, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> uh, so the, the 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 indoor climbing wall in the Chamonix Valley in Les Uges is remarkably high for an uh -huh. indoor wall, and uh -huh. the challenge is to to go there and see if you can get yourself all the way from the bottom to the top uh, on that wall. Pick the easiest route, not a problem. I my husband will be delighted because he's been trying to get me back into climbing for a long time. <laughs> and we have some really good climbing walls around this part of the world. So I will go and attempt that particular challenge. Yes, I currently have a bit of a hip problem, so it may be a little while before I get to do it. But uh, yeah, that, I, I, I challenge accepted. Excellent. Send me a photograph when you've done it. I'll get, get your husband Roger to take that. one of you on the wall. I will do. Okay. And if I can get to Lesouche, I'll do it there. If not, I'll do it here. Uh, we've got one in the valley that's pretty impressive. So, yeah. Oh, Kathy, thank you so much. And you know what I've really loved about this conversation is that you are quite brutally honest. And I find that very, not saying any of my guests before you have lied, but I find that 
you've challenged me and you've made me think differently about the questions that I've asked or the assumptions that I had. And I'm really very grateful for that. It's, uh, it makes for a great conversation. No, I'm glad I've sort of had to accept that I seem to think slightly differently, not compared to everybody, but compared to quite a lot of people. And it's a slightly weird space to live in, but what can you do? Um, that's the way I think about the world and it, it works for me. And it certainly resonates with some people. So I'm glad to be able to speak out to those who maybe also feel as if they're slightly out on the edge in the way they think about the world and go like, yeah, no, there are a couple of us out here and, you know, we we need to do some pretty (laughs) cool stuff here, even if we're just a little bit odd. Oh, that's fine. I'm I'm married to one of those, so I I have plenty of practice, to be fair. (laughs) So thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, uh, I'm hoping it's not going to be another 20 years before we speak again, but uh, that was really brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week with some more great chat with another amazing woman. Bye-bye.